Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. In this episode, I am detouring from our Mildura series. We'll return to that in the coming weeks. And we're detouring because yesterday morning, the day before this goes to air, I was editing the Mildura Eco Village interviews as I was supposed to be on schedule and got sidetracked by an article I saw on social media that was released by the Melbourne branch of Friends of the Earth, or FOE. Within half an hour of reading it, I had contacted the author and was in the car to go to his house and record what you're about to hear. So the last few weeks, my newsfeed has been dominated by the events happening in Glasgow with COP. And I'm sure many of you listening have also had similar news feeds over the last few weeks. So for those who don't know or haven't, haven't seen that much about it, COP, COP, refers to the Conference of the Parties. It's a United Nations thing. And basically, governments from all around the world gather together to discuss how to manage and how to work together around climate change. And there's all sorts of deals and agreements and meetings that happen. And outside, there are thousands of people trying to let them know that people care. The climate-related news media has been saturated over the last few weeks with reactions, reflections and commentary about this major political event. I've seen Greta Thunberg singing, Extinction Rebellion, protesters creating theatrical statements. Our Prime Minister Scott Morrison has been getting blasted and ridiculed for his performance. And locally, I've heard people saying kind of how depressing it all is and how angry some of it's making them, how watered down commitments as these countries negotiate with each other means that we're actually not going to collectively take the action we need to take to curb climate change. And a lot of people are starting to sound really resigned to the idea that climate change is going to be catastrophic. Personally, I've felt overwhelmed and unsure how to respond to all of this on this platform within this podcast how to comment on a massive global political moment on my grassroots show. (laughs) The world of climate change is ginormous and diverse, and if I covered every major climate-related event around the world, I would never actually get around to telling the local grassroots stories. So I do generally not focus on those sort of events. I also didn't really know enough about it all, and so I didn't feel qualified to offer commentary, and there's such an abundance of commentary already out there, so it didn't really seem sensible for me to engage with it. But then, this morning, when I read the Friends of the Earth article, I had a suspicion that I knew who had written it, and that he was local, and that I've interviewed him before, and perhaps talking to him would be exactly what I needed to do, both to get my own head around what's been happening in Glasgow, and also share a local perspective about what it all means, what Australia's miserable presence there has meant for us and for the world. So in this episode, Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth chats with me to discuss exactly what went down in Glasgow and unpack some of the dynamics that makes Australian politics what it is. And just for those listening to the podcast who are not Australian, we affectionately call our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, ScoMo. And ScoMo's performance and his representation of Australia's position in terms of climate action is frankly shameful and embarrassing and exactly what many of us were expecting from him. But rest assured, there are many, many, many people in Australia who want a much stronger action on climate and disagree with Scott Morrison's position on practically everything and really are quite distressed by our federal government's position. Cam and I met on 
Jara country. Jara country is the traditional home of the Jajarung people who have been custodians and caretakers of this land for tens of thousands of years. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Sovereignty was never ceded. Salt, salt, salt of the earth. Salt, salt, salt. Grassroots, salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. My personal feeling about this latest COP conference is I've just almost not been able to look at it because it's too big, it's too far away, these people are too powerful. And the whole point of my show is me saying, okay, what can we do on the ground at local level? What can I feel like I have agency with? And that sort of political world is their mechanisms that's so much bigger than anything I can really influence. And you see people protesting and protesting and you see politicians ignoring and ignoring. So it, it, it can leave you feeling really defeated. Uh, and then you see ScoMo almost didn't go. It was public pressure that made him go in a way. And even when he did go, he was deflecting, minimising, making it as small as possible. So it's really depressing as an Australian to watch our elected leader act that way. <laughs> and there's so much coverage of this conference and it seems to mean so much and a lot of it is like almost panicky kind of vibe mm. of like it has to be now we yeah, have to do totally. stuff now yeah, yeah. and I just I find myself really shutting down with that which yeah. is again with this show Saltgrass what I'm really wanting to do is just have relaxed conversations mm. that help people mm. not shut down yep. yeah great <laughs> <laughs> that's my whole purpose I guess what I'd like to hear from you is your role at Friends of the Earth is like it's your job to be across this stuff and Friends of the Earth is an international organisation and it's involved over there and it's involved in multiple countries who are all being represented over there. What's it been like for you to watch this happen and see it all unfold? Climate change is a global problem and it exists in a historical reality and that is some nations have caused the problem and some nations are experiencing the pain so the impact is disproportionate so it's global so therefore it requires a global response and that is the dilemma because we know once you lock 200 nations in a room and you operate effectively on consensus it's going to be very hard to get meaningful agreement so it is a, a paradox. You know, we need to collaborate globally and yet collaborating globally is so hard. And those of us in the regions or in a city somewhere looking up at that, we know how hard it is to influence the state government, let alone the federal government, let alone an international conversation about the future of the planet. So I understand we feel conflicting emotions about it, but it is to a large degree, while the real work happens on the ground in real communities, it has to be guided by what happens globally. Yeah, absolutely. What did you see as the conference unfolded? What did you see happening that you either expected or didn't expect it? So back in the year 2000, the conference talks were held in Bonn. And at that point, there was a sense of urgency about we need to act in this decade. So it was 21 years ago, and the goal was to act within the 20 zeros. Exactly. And we failed to do that. So each time, every five years, there's the next conference of parties or COP. It gets, if you like, a little bit more hysterical because we've burnt another five years without taking action. So the build up to this one was quite intense. And of course, every year the climate science gets more exact. And what we're finding is the forecast, the predictions of 20 years ago 
are frighteningly correct, but often turn out to be quite conservative. So we've had a you know a twenty one year conversation of driving towards a brick wall and a twenty one year conversation about should we slow down or change our direction and we've decided not to. So the people that are paying attention, you know, we are pretty traumatized because we can see what's coming. We also know that we're locked into climate change and I really don't know any climate scientists that would truthfully say we can hold warming to one point five. You know, we've gone past that now. We've already experience 1.1 but we've got locked into the system at least 1.5 and the commitments we made if we stick to them the commitments we made at Glasgow will lead to 2.1 to 2.4 degrees Celsius of warming so you know we're locked into catastrophic impacts so how do we hold on to hope and how do we hold on to effective action if we're willing to look at that reality and that's really the dilemma that we face but there was this sense of urgency and I think that was really clearly shown by the fact that all the leaders arrived in the first couple of days including our Prime Minister to talk about their commitments so normally what happens is you have two weeks of talks All the bureaucrats get there the first week and they haggle over sentences and then the leaders fly in to do the deal, whereas it was the other way around this time and that was a sense of the urgency. And people that I know that were there in civil society groups said, look, there was really deeper conversations and there were so many delegations who were like, we fully understand what's going on and many people say that is reflected in what was agreed to. But at the same time, there's always this kind of business as usual process that slows things down and because the process wants to take the whole global community with it, it tends to go towards a low common denominator outcome. Yeah, and also quite influential and visible and wealthy countries like Australia are really, like you titled your piece that you wrote for Friends of the Earth, Rich Nations Have Kicked the Can Down the Road. And it really feels like that because what I see online about what we call them the global south, don't we? There's no non-political way to say it. Basically, countries that have historically been exploited by the global north, in inverted commas, for slavery, resources, deforestation, mining, all of those things, they've been gutted historically, are now the poorer nations of the world and disempowered and have a lot of problems in their societies due to colonisation and exploitation. And, you know, there's a raft of reasons why these countries are, I don't know, maybe you could explain all that better, but a lot of them have been saying, you know, we haven't caused this. We are not the ones who every household has two cars and we drive everywhere. We're not the ones who every person has a mobile phone and three in a box that we don't use anymore. We don't fly places for our holidays. So I guess that's just my ramble to say how countries like Australia showing up and then not committing to tougher targets and not committing to supporting poorer nations is fundamentally really, like I feel deeply embarrassed and really depressed by Australia's position. So do you want to talk about Scott Morrison and what he's done there? So in in terms of Australia's role, we have this kind of constructed amnesia about the historical reality of the fact that we have created per capita a huge amount of the climate change that is now impacting on countries of the South. And, you know, that's been constructed and been firmly in place at least since John Howard was Prime Minister back in the 1990s. And we continue to run a line that, you know, we should be in effect de-linked from the conversation around historic debt 
debt because we're exporting coal, which is, quote, helping people in other countries to develop, which is a furphy argument, you know, because what India needs is solar and wind and storage. It doesn't need coal. But it's it's a manufactured construct that we're doing the right thing that allows us to ignore the historical reality of the carbon debt. So Australia went there uh, with a, a remarkably ideological pitch, which was, quote, can-do capitalism will solve the problems, that it will be uh, the, quote, Australian way that will deliver outcomes for us. Uh, the, the Australian way was very poorly defined when the uh, documents were finally released, which was the modelling upon which the, the Australian position was developed. You could drive a truck through it. It was so badly done. I noticed one key researcher from the Climate Council said it was as if it had been written in a crayon. It had, you know, that much value. So it was predicated largely on the use of carbon capture and storage, which doesn't work at scale. It was basically a, a smoke and mirror policy announcement that was made in front of people from Tuvalu and Kiribati and Nigeria who are on the sharp end of climate change. And so it really didn't go down well. The key underlying debate in these conversations, at least since the 19th, 1990s has been the rich caused this so therefore the rich must go first and the rich must assist the south in transitioning to renewable technologies and climate adaptation and that was front and center particularly in the second week of these uh, talks however countries like australia keep trying to kind of liquid paper that part of the conversation out of the domestic conversation here. That's why you never hear Scott Morrison talk about historic debt or carbon debt or historic responsibility. It's all uh, framed in this kind of pro-capitalist, we're just helping the poor people in the world to develop. So I'm interested in what you said Australia's position is technology, not taxes and things like that, which I think having done this show for the last couple of years, and you see it with the mega rich guys who want to get space exploration happening somehow like that's going to save us like no one yet knows how to live on mars we can't live on mars like there's no way to export humans to another world once we've destroyed this one we have to protect this world and you can't eat money this is what people of wisdom have been saying for a very long time you can be as rich as you want but it doesn't make you safe from deprivation if all you've got is money. But this idea of relying on technology and tech fixes is, I feel like it's really wishful thinking and it's a trap that a lot of people fall into. Not to say there's no place for technology to fit into it, but like the best tech fix is actually to grow lots of seaweed, right? <laughs> it's not It's not to have some like machine in the air that's going to gobble up carbon dioxide. Like that's not been invented yet. So I feel like, yeah, this, this Australian attitude of technology fixing is just another form of denial, really. Yes. So our nation was founded on historical denial and we've really struggled to kind of, you know, pull the Band-Aid off that particular one as we see it played out every year on Invasion Day, Australia Day. You know, we, we struggle with the fact that the, we invaded this place and took the land. And that denial is now very apparent when it comes to climate change. So again, we're not willing to accept the role we have had as a part of the global north, which is we have very high per capita greenhouse gas emissions, even though overall, because there's not many of us here, we're a, a smaller gross emitter, but we are a very high per capita emitter. So, you know, there is this denial that's very, very deep. And the other thing we have to acknowledge is the role of the mainstream media here. 
70% of our media is owned by the Murdochs and the Murdochs have traditionally platformed climate denial and have traditionally been very aligned with the fossil fuel sector and the conservative side of politics. So you get the federal government, the coalition pushing this, quote, technology neutral approach, which actually privileges fossil fuels. You get an unwillingness to intervene on the policy level. So people probably remember the whole carbon tax price on carbon debate of, you know, a decade or so ago. So they're very hesitant to go down that direction and they just want to talk about choice it's individual choice you might want an electric vehicle you know we might encourage business to do the right thing sadly the reality we're facing with that 2.1 to 2.4 degrees warming locked in under current scenarios we don't just have a choice of saying it's about personal choices anymore we need governments to intervene we need governments to show leadership and we need them to drive the economy in the direction we need to go so it's a abdication of responsibility and it's a failure of leadership that we have the federal coalition constantly pushing capitalism will protect us line when it's patently and absurd incorrect to hold that line. And also on that note, as you well know, Cam, we don't live in an actually pure capitalist society. Our government subsidises fossil fuels tremendously. If they actually let the chips fall and let businesses be businesses, and if you don't have a successful business model, your business fails, instead of propping up all of these industries, we would have a different result. Mm. Correct. Yes, we would. And as we know, we've got a government that's backed in the fossil fuel sector every step of the way. And the proof of that recently is the post-COVID recovery, which has been, quote, a gas-led recovery. And that has been so criticised and so debunked that it's really not going to deliver a lot of jobs or economic activity. But the government is ideologically wedded to it. So it's it's just they, they are unable to step away from this fixation and attachment to fossil fuels. I think the fact that through gritted teeth, the Prime Minister was forced to adopt a net zero target by 2050 that speaks volumes about the public pressure so coming back to where we are now feeling that understandably disempowered approach to these global negotiations we should be very proud of the fact that community sentiment forced the prime minister to move in spite of the very public opposition from within his own coalition historically we've had a lot of government funded resources and gradually since the 90s i guess things have been privatized Resource after resource, like water, waste, power, all of those things have gradually been privatised, which used to be government-funded and owned so that everyone had equal access and it wasn't commercialised and we weren't risk it gouging from corporations. That was the idealistic underpinning of that society. And we've gradually had that eroded to the point where almost everything's privatised and yet the government is still arguing for fossil fuels as if they're providing the Australian public with a service in the old school way, but it doesn't actually exist anymore. Our power is privatised. We pay money to a corporation for power. It's not the government providing us with that, except through all these subsidies to fossil fuels. So it's it doesn't make sense. Indeed, yes. So the government has backed the wrong horse. They've backed in fossil fuels in spite of the evidence. And the evidence is, well, the cost of renewables and storage keeps going down. The cost of fossil fuels keeps going up. And business is shifting. The community is shifting. you just got to look at the number of solar panels on people's roofs and the huge number of local community energy projects and all the rest of it. People have moved on and the polling consistently shows that. But the federal government is you know, unwilling to let go of its addiction to fossil fuels. There's a lot of speculation that there is levels of corruption involved in that. Are you able to comment on that? I really can't. It's 
tricky, but we do know that the fossil fuel sector gives a lot of money to both of the major parties. And if you, you know, look at where staffers move and the revolving door, there is a very clear revolving door that has been documented between, for instance, people in the Prime Minister's office and the Minerals Council of Australia. So you get a lot of very pro-mining, pro-fossil fuel people who are going on to work either as bureaucrats or as staffers and advisors in the offices of key ministers. Yeah, there's been a documentary made on, on that exact issue. Cam and I both tried to remember the name of the doco at this point, and I've cut all of that out because neither of us could remember it, but it's actually an ABC two-part program that's recently been released called A Big Deal, and it investigates all of the convoluted connections between people who work in our federal government and the fossil fuels industries and how they've often held positions in both. So I've got a link to that in the episode description on the podcast app and also at saltgrasspodcast.com if you're interested in watching that. Next up, I asked Cam about some of the less than honourable awards that Australia has won this year at COP26. These are clearly not official awards and are actually created by a global organisation called Climate Activist Network, C-A-N, CAN, Australia took out the top, in inverted commas, award and were named a colossal fossil. So during the talks, there were a number of assessments done. So the civil society groups do a fossil of the day award and Australia won it three times during the two weeks of the conference, more than any other nation for very poor policy. But there were also a number of assessments done across the board and across different sectors. So stationary energy, electricity, agriculture, that sort of thing. And in one of the key assessments, we came in absolutely at the bottom of the table because our economy is so hot, wet and heavy. It produces a lot of greenhouse gases per unit of, of gross domestic product. It uses a lot of water and it uses a lot of electricity. And so we haven't as yet transitioned in the way, for instance, some of the emerging economies like Japan and South Korea have done in Southeast Asia or the European nations have done. So we're very much stuck in a kind of an old style of industrialisation, even as we lose our manufacturing sector. And that's why we, we polled so badly in some of those reports that came out in the last two weeks. Yeah, it's interesting to me that Australia or our current Prime Minister and his party feel so immune to that international sentiment about what, you know, they feel sort of invulnerable I think there's there's sort of a cocky arrogance and even just doing it the Australian way it's not being a team player that's saying you know I'm going to do it my way and middle yep. finger up at yeah <laughs> well the prime minister even went further and he basically said multilateralism is over you know, when he was in Glasgow, he said that basically we're sick of people telling us what to do. And that's a form of dog whistling to one world government conspiracy theories. You know, the UN is trying to tell us um, that you need to drive an electric vehicle. He is playing to his base and his base, as he sees it, is very conservative, climate denying, kind of middle of the road people. And I think that it's quite a hazardous path. Is it middle of the road? I don't think it is. I think he's misreading it. And that's borne out by the fact that the National M- 
MPs who were pushing so hard against even a net zero by 2050 target were being challenged by people, for instance, nationals from Victoria, who realised that their rural constituencies understood that climate change is real and we needed to do something about it. I think they're misreading their own base now, but that's what happens when your ideology clouds even your common sense and your ability to read the room. So, you know, they are what they are. I think we can push them more. This time next year, they're going to have to talk about what their updated 2030 targets are. We have a huge opportunity to push them in an election year to go deeper because the target we actually committed to is the same as the one that Tony Abbott committed to back in 2015. You know, it's just not tenable. It's just not good enough, especially when other nations like the UK have gone so much further. But yeah, I I think that we just have to accept that ideology is very hard to let go of and we have a deeply ideological federal government. Absolutely. So let's talk about how some of the other countries operated within this conference this year. You mentioned in your article that China and Russia didn't even show up, but then China did commit to some things, but maybe from afar. They just didn't send a representative. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the USA and China actually announced a deal whereby they would collaborate to reduce emissions. If you look at the documentation, it is a little bit vague and a little bit fluffy. There's no really hard detail in there. But as a commitment, I think that was really welcome. Russia is generally a baddie in these negotiations, as are the oil producing countries. So it was no real surprise there. The thing that I think is really noticeable and has been happening for 15 years is the voices of the southern nations on the front line of climate change. Tuvalu, Fiji, you know, the Saharan nations, they are such a powerful voice in these negotiations and really do lift the level of the debate. And the fact that we had Biden, who is a multilateralist, back in the room instead of Trump, I think also shifted the gravitational centre of things. That's really important, isn't it? Because he gets a lot of flack, Biden. But it's so such a relief that Trump's not in our newsfeed constantly. I guess no one can – you can't be a leader of America and not get a lot of flack. Absolutely. Yeah. And some of it is well deserved, of course, because there's the you know, the internal tension between the moderates and the progressives and the conservatives within the Democrat Party and so on. I do think, though, that he's played a really important role in repositioning climate change as a core mainstream issue, whereas Trump could only frame it as a culture war issue, which means conservative people don't believe in climate change. But if you look at the infrastructure bill that he has just put through, there's actually some remarkable detail in there around just transitions for coal communities and rebuilding public infrastructure. So as we were saying before, across the Western world in particular, we've witnessed a couple of decades of privatisation of all essential services. And what happens when you're running essential services for profit is you run them down. And that's very apparent in the United States. So a commitment to put public money into rebuilding public infrastructure, I think, is a really important signal for the direction that he intends to take his country. Yeah, that's really interesting. And even just negotiating an alliance with China to reduce emissions sounds like a big deal. It was a smart move as well because publicly they're having blows over Taiwan and a whole range of issues and China's military reach in Southeast Asia and all the rest of it. So that was a masterstroke to be able to pull out from seemingly nowhere a really significant announcement at the crunch time in the COP negotiations as well because it was in the second week when people were haggling over lines on paper and it shifted it back into a big picture narrative for a day or two. So it's really not just people getting together with a preformed opinion at these conferences. They're really sitting down in rooms and haggling over stuff and and writing commitments that are meaningful. As much as Australia's commitments are not commitments at all, they're just sort of like wishy-washy nonsense phrases that don't actually specify anything in particular, a lot of countries are getting in there 
and they're making really serious negotiations at this conference. That's true. And a big part of the second week was the loss and damages conversation. So how does the Global North support the Global South, A, to transition in terms of the energy they use, so from coal to renewables, but also how do we help them to adapt to the climate change that is locked in? And there were some really good things there. One of the things that really stood out for me was there was a deal done with the United States, the European Union and South Africa to help them shift from coal because at present South Africa is heavily reliant on coal. So traditionally what happens is the rich countries commit to giving a lot of money in the cops and then actually don't do it. So of course, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. Will Do we deliver on the current set of promises? But there was some very good aspects of that conversation at this COP. And I mean, with the Pacific Island nations, it seems like the only promise we can really make is either to act really swiftly to stop climate change or we take a bunch of people's refugees. That's how dire it is for them. Like there's not a, oh, we just need to transition to different types of electricity. Like that, it's a fundamentally different equation for those people, isn't it? It is. And there's even a conversation now, uh, both with Tuvalu and Kiribati, what happens when we have to leave our nation and we go somewhere else? How do we retain our sovereignty? You know, like we're at that point. This is a conversation humanity has never had before. You know, we are going to start to lose individual nations. The Maldives would be another obvious one. You know, the atoll nations could be lost in our lifetimes. And that raises some profound issues in terms of where do those people go and who looks after them. And how do they have rights and powers exactly. and cultural exactly. you know, lineage? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think there is an historical example of us choosing a group of people and plonking them down somewhere. And that's obviously Israel. And that's obviously not worked out well in terms of a long-term peaceful solution that's been ongoing since World War II, basically. It's not great. And we're still in the international frameworks around refugees and displacement. We still don't have a category for environmentally displaced people or environmental refugees. So that's a primary dilemma at this point. Nations don't accept displacement. They don't accept the reality of it. And so if you come to Australia from Tuvalu and say, my country is going underwater, you can't actually seek asylum anyway. So we've got a whole bunch of issues we need to work through before we start to respond properly. There was another development that you mentioned in your article, which is Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, which sounds really hopeful. It sounds like there are at least several nations that are prepared to band together and say we really need to transition fully away from fossil fuels. So can you talk to that a little? Yeah, so this was a really significant development. It was led by Costa Rica and Denmark, but about 40 countries eventually signed on. So this was a commitment in the short term to transition away from fossil fuels in a really tangible way. So it's like a subset. It's not recognised by the UN. It's a, if you like, a voluntary grouping that's going to go off and do things, but it's a really important bit of leadership. So that was very heartening to see. The bigger kind of what they called the Glasgow Pact, which is the agreement that I think 197 countries signed on to, was a little bit more wishy-washy in that it, it talked about drawing down on the use of fossil fuels rather than phasing it out. So this little subset of 40 nations will be the leadership group as the larger grouping, the official formally recognised grouping kind of moves more slowly towards phasing out fossil fuels. Mm. And so was India actually significant in changing that language in terms of negotiating that? 
They were in that their intervention was late in the day where they wanted to, you know, change the wording from phase out to phase down. And I think there's a sense that because they are such a large nation in terms of sheer volume of people, and it's really important that they have a leadership role from the global south, that their concerns be taken seriously. So it was a compromise to possibly an unreasonable position, but, you know, it's it's where the, the whole negotiation landed. It's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously Australia's coal exports are one of the most contentious ones is an Indian-owned company called Adani, which we've covered in the show previously, who people have been protesting this for, what, 10 years or more, protesting the Adani coal mine to largely a huge success. If the protesters hadn't been there, Adani would have been fully functioning by now and exporting megatons of coal. So from an Australian perspective, it's clear that India has an, an interest in an investment in fossil fuels. I don't know if that's just the rich guys who want to keep mining and selling it, or if that's as a nation, the, their energy systems are reliant on coal still and they actually need it. I'd suggest it's the elites that are driving that, as often is the case. So here in Australia, the elites, being the, the federal coalition, are driving a pro-fossil fuel agenda, and I'd suggest it's the same in India. And that's often very different to what people on the ground want. And there is actually quite a strong anti-coal movement in regions within India, and there is quite a strong climate change movement. But there's also some extreme forms of nationalism that are also influencing the debate over there. And I think that the elites in India have linked old-fashioned development, which means lots of fossil fuels, with forming a really strong nation. And unfortunately, they're a little bit caught in the past on that front. So they've linked them psychologically in the populace's mind so that people go, oh, if we want to have a strong nation, we have to have fossil fuels. At least in the narrative, if not in the actual minds of the, of the people. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. So where does that leave us? I feel like this conference has had perhaps particular potency because we just had a new IPCC report released just a couple months beforehand, which was really quite dire and very sobering for anyone who's read it. But these conferences, they happen, Is there, when's the next one going to happen? So they're normally every five years, and this one was delayed a year because of COVID. However, by next year, countries need to commit to an updated 2030 target. So what's happening is we're ratcheting down the time between the meetings because the sense of urgency is so great. So we actually have a really great opportunity to influence what Australia does with its 2030 target. The Prime Minister is saying, no, that's what it is because that's what we told the Australian people would be. But, you know, they used to oppose a net 2050 zero target as well. So they just signed on to one. Exactly. They're eminently shiftable on this, certainly in an election year. Very interesting. So we've got this one year to show our politicians how important it is to the public. So... I guess that's where organisations like Friends of the Earth become really important because you've got this capacity to mobilise, activate, have campaigns that raise awareness and get people engaged. What sort of things will Friends of the Earth be trying to do in the next year? We'll have a strong focus on lifting the 2030 commitments, so that'll be a big chunk of our work. So at present it's 26 to 28% reduction, and that's just not good enough, so we need to shift it closer to 45 or 50 um, as a commitment federally. So all the commitments are bent. Benchmarked. Some are benchmarked against the year 2005 and some of the older ones are benchmarked against the year uh, 1990. Obviously, the later benchmark is more important because emissions grow year on year. So if you get a commitment of 26 to 28% reduction against 2005 by 2030, we would say, well, you need to ratchet that up to 45% or 50% or beyond. Because if they were committing to comparison to 1990, it would 
the, the emissions back then were so much lower. Exactly. That, yeah. Yep. Yep. So pushing for that federal action, certainly in an election context, but then you've got the day-to-day issues. So in Queensland, there's an example, for instance, Clive Palmer has just quietly announced that he wants to build and open a new coal-fired power station in the kind of central Queensland basin. We've got gas drilling in the Beedaloo Basin in the Northern Territory. We've got massive gas projects proposed offshore in northwest WA. We've got gas drilling underway in terms of approvals in Bass Strait. So we've got lots of the what we call site-resistant campaigning that will a lot of our attention in the next year. Yeah, so on the ground at a specific site about a specific issue rather than this broader political kind of talk. I wonder if you would describe Clive Palmer for an international audience who may not know who he is or what his his history is as an influence in in Australia. Clive Palmer is a very wealthy and very influential man who also dabbles in politics and has thrown a lot of money into politics to basically influence the debate and what that has done is shift votes which have then benefited the coalition. So he's intervened very strongly in the election process in Australia in a way that we would say has been very destructive in terms of climate policy and now he wants to actually invest in coal it seems so extraordinary i don't i really don't understand these people who want to keep investing in fossil fuels like i don't i really seriously don't get it i don't get it as a business case i don't get it as a person in the world who wants to live into your old age i don't get any of it yeah it's it's profound cognitive dissonance really isn't it yes And I guess a lot of them believe their own rhetoric and legitimately see people who advocate for climate justice and climate change action as the ratbags that they describe us as. They literally see as insane radicals. But the world has shifted, of course. You've just got to look at Business Council Australia and all the fossil fuel companies that are transitioning to renewables and the, the, the scale of investment in renewables. The world has changed, but the old cultural warriors can't let go of that. They can only look backwards. They can't actually look forwards. And I'm also really interested in people like Clive Palmer and, and Gina Reinhart, who are some of the richest people in Australia, potentially don't have people around them telling them the truth. They're able to be so insulated because they've got such insane wealth that they don't actually have to listen to anyone. (laughs) Mm, True. Yep, you can do what you want. Yeah, really interesting. Did you know people on the ground at COP? And what was your sense of what the experience was for people protesting outside or trying to be visible outside to show the politicians and the movers and shakers inside that people cared. Yeah, so if you put all the people together, it's something like 35 to 40,000 people are involved in the COP in one shape or form as a member of a delegation or a civil society group. And that's, you know, Indigenous groups, farming groups, fossil fuel lobbyists, environmentalists, close to 40,000 people. So it is enormous. One of my friends who used to work with Friends of the Earth, who was on the inside as part of a negotiating team, said he had no doubt that the presence of people out on the streets, for instance, more than 100,000 people marching on the streets of Glasgow, had a huge influence on the negotiations inside. It really focused the attention of the delegations. And And I felt that many of the people who were inside felt that they were having impact. But in the final moments of the negotiations, most of the civil society reps actually walked out and joined the protests outside because they'd basically given up on the process. So, you know, it was a lot of hard work and there's a lot of inside-outside work. So there are people working the lobbies and working the delegations and feeding information in and then talking to the people that are outside in the streets. And the idea is that if we work strategically and share intelligence, then that 
allows really good outcomes and really appropriate application of pressure to individual delegations. Mm. And I'm seeing a lot of post-event rhetoric on social media and stuff about how it was a total failure and nothing was good enough, which I can completely understand people feeling that way because a lot of it was really watered down and it's certainly not as strong a response as we wanted from our global leaders. But what, what's your sense of the success of the event? It certainly wasn't good enough. We know that. We knew it was never going to be good enough. We knew that deals would override the science. But there is a lot of good things in this. There is this unprecedented focus on the need to transition. There is an unprecedented focus on the need to support the global south as they adapt to climate change. And there were some good agreements, such as the deforestation agreement, the the conversation around reducing emissions from methane by the end of this century, and also the Beyond Oil and Gas Coalition. So, I think we need to focus on the good and use the opportunities that we have to drive further commitments and further action in the next year and certainly by the time the next COP comes around. Yeah, great. Just on that, one of Australia's commitments was stopping deforestation, but it didn't include native forests. That doesn't make sense. Deforestation is cutting down (laughs) native forests. Well, they would argue uh, that the UN definition doesn't include native forest logging, so it only includes uh, where you have a primary forest that then might be cut down and turned into palm oil plantations or agriculture. So if you're revegetating the forest, then it's not covered. So it was a, a little bit of sleight of hand that Australia employed there. We are hoping that it will have some impact on land clearing in places like New South Wales, Queensland and the Northern Territory. So they can't just wholesale clear massive tracts of forest to yes. make way for cows. and Exactly, yes. And that, of course, is a huge issue in places like um, the Amazon in Brazil and even in the north in places like Siberia and Canada. So it's good on the global scale that this deforestation agreement was made. It was good that Australia was there. It was one of the few places where we were in the right place at the right time. And hopefully it will have some impact on land clearing here in the north of Australia. That was Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth Melbourne helping unpack exactly what went down at the recent international gathering of political leaders in Glasgow called COP26. So there are links of many of the things we've discussed here in the episode description at the podcast and also at saltgrasspodcast.com. For those of you listening on Main FM or 3MDR, please note that you can listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app. If you can't find Saltgrass on your podcasting app, please let us know and we'll see what we can do to make it available there. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. Again, you can do that by going to saltgrasspodcast.com. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Alison Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.